Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the O Show Podcast, episode 468. We are presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ, Floyd Money Mayweather himself formulated with the perfect combination of boxing, strength, and cardio conditioning intervals designed to enhance your human experience and leave you with more than just a great sweat. Head on down to Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're also sponsored by betonline.ag. Sign up for that 50% bonus by using that promo code, capital B-L-E-A-V-50. Again, that promo code is capital B-L-E-A-V-50. Week 16 uh, of the NFL, week 17, I believe, coming up this week. Our guest today knows a little something about sports. He's a play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, as well as for ESPN, Mr. Rich Hollenberg. How are you doing today, man? Excellent, Jack. I I suddenly feel like, A, I want to take boxing lessons, Yeah. and B, I want to get out to to Scottsdale and visit with my friend uh, Bryce Drew, because uh, I, I suddenly have this urge to get out west. Oh, man, Bryce Drew, he's doing a phenomenal job. GCU yeah. graduate right here. Two of the guys that we work with in the studio, GCU graduates. So go Lopes. Go. But I, I appreciate you coming on today, man, because I have so much I want to pick your brain about as an aspiring play-by-play voice as well as just your intellect about the entire industry as a whole. Because I was reading on one of your posts on LinkedIn that you first picked up a microphone at the age of six, and it was something yeah. that you wanted to do at a very young age. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if it was six, but it was somewhere in those prepubescent years, Jack, yeah. where uh, my my one of the first presents I remember receiving as uh, a Hanukkah gift was the Donnie and Marie microphone set that my sister and I could share. Now, you're way too young to know who Donnie and Marie is, and if you do, I give you credit, but they were a, a very popular music and television act when I was growing up. And uh, that was the first that was the first microphone that I actually held in my hand. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I knew it was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. And lo and behold, some 40 plus odd years later, here I am as a sportscaster making a living with a microphone in my hand. So what was the first thing you did at the age of six with that mic set that you shared with your (laughs) sister? Like what what kind of set, you know, a passion for you at at a young age, just playing with it? You know what? I don't. It, it was that. It was singing in the back seat. It was music. Has always been something that I've been uh, madly in love about. Um, I knew I wasn't a good enough singer to make a living out of it. I knew uh, playing instruments. I was not cut out for. I took saxophone lessons in the fourth grade. I took drum lessons in the sixth grade. I took guitar lessons when I graduated from high school, and none of it stuck, Jack. So I am one of those. Uh, sing in the shower, love karaoke kind of guys, but that's as far as it goes as far as my passion for music. And I also had an equal passion for sports. And when I realized as, let's say, a 13-year-old that I was never going to be taller than six feet tall, and I certainly didn't have uh, the athletic abilities that would get me to the professional level, I said sports casting is the next best thing, and that's what put me on this path. So what age was that specifically? That was probably around 13. Uh, I went to a a summer camp for a number of years up in the Poconos area in Pennsylvania. And right down the street from my summer camp was a very famous basketball camp called Five Star Basketball Camp. And my head counselor of my camp used to go over to uh, that particular camp at Five Star and kind of pick off some of the guys who were there and super stud, five-star blue chip high school players used to go there. And college students who were on scholarship used to go and be there as counselors along with college head basketball coaches looking to network and make some connections. They'd be there as well. So my head counselor would go over there and invite some of those guys to come over to my camp. And that's how I fell in love with Syracuse. That's how I fell in love with college basketball and NBA basketball for sure. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey, which is right over the George Washington Bridge from New York City. So I grew up with Yankee Stadium, Madison Square Garden, Giant Stadium, 
all in my proverbial backyard. Yeah, Morris County right here. Morristown, oh, New Jersey. I always right, find a way to interview represent. New Jersey people. It's unbelievable, no matter right, where I'm at. Right. Are you in Florida now? I am. I, I've lived down in uh, the Tampa Bay area for over 25 years now. So wow. I, I moved down to Florida just like everyone from the Northeast does. I just did yeah. a little bit earlier than most people do. Jeff. Yeah, I, I completely understand. As soon as I had the opportunity to go to college, I'm like, I'm going out west. I need something completely <laughs> different. I am so done with the winters. Just went back yeah. for, for Christmas. Half the people are, have COVID that are populated there. It's unbelievable. Yeah, we always joke that uh, in Florida right now, knock wood, we're, we're in our own personal little bubble here. And things are going uh, a little bit better here than most places, but... You know, I don't want to wish any bad ill will towards anybody. I hope everybody stays safe out there. I mean, it's getting very interesting for sure. But I, I definitely want to get into, you know, you saying that at 13 years old, that's when it kind of all clicked for you, getting those early on experiences. What was the first ever play-by-play um, game you did? What sport was it? It was in high school. I was the sports editor of my high school newspaper, Pascack Valley. It was called The Smoke Signal. And I announced the high school football games. So the games that my friends were playing in and my girlfriends were cheering for, I was in the announce booth and basically I created that position. No one had ever done that before. They just had a parent or a teacher volunteer and call out names, you know, Dan Labner hands off to Rob Badakian who goes six yards around the end for a first down. And I said, hey, can I volunteer to do this? And so myself and two of my friends went up into the press box and we became the de facto announcers for Pascack Valley football. That's awesome. Was it more of like you were doing play by play, but it was actually like kind of announcing it to everybody in the crowd? Listen, dude, I'm a lot older than you are. I don't know how old you are, but I'm a lot older than you are. There was no streaming. There was no internet back then. It was, I was broadcasting to whoever was in attendance on the field that Saturday morning. That's honestly a great experience too, because it's like you really have, you're going to have to work out your kinks. Like there's going to be, you know, shaking off those cobweb moments. You're going to, you're going to mess up. You're going to trip over words. And that's honestly the best way to experience that. Cause everybody's going to let you know whether what they thought of you. No doubt. No doubt. And obviously I was a 16, 17 year old kid. So no one was going to pick on me about my right. performance, but uh, yeah, listen, I, I tell all the aspiring sportscasters who I speak to reps is the most important thing. Just get in front of a microphone whatever medium it is, whether it's a podcast or a radio show or a streaming service or uh, an actual linear television broadcast, just get as many reps as you can in front of that microphone. Yeah, I I think that obviously is the most important thing as well as you know you've been through it. You're at the professional level, Major League Baseball, you know, college sports alike. Do you think that going to a specific school, like I personally don't think so, you know, going to GCU, I got all the reps in the world. There was like four of us doing play-by-play for all the sports. So like we had all the reps in the world over the last four years. But then of course, like you with Syracuse and then of course Fordham in in the Bronx, like two heavy hitting broadcast schools. Like, do you think that plays a factor too into kind of getting your name out there and getting your resume out there? You know what, Jack, that's a great question. And I, I think I agree with you to a certain extent. In this day, I have a son who is graduating from high school this year. And uh, I think more than ever, all the advice that I sought out as a parent, uh, the overwhelming advice was, it doesn't really matter where you go to school as much as what you do when you are in that school. Uh, for me, I think it was a little bit different. For me, it was Syracuse or bust. And that's not a diss on the Northwesterns or the Floridas or now the Grand Canyons of the world. There are lots of great media schools out there in the country, too many to list, but I knew about Syracuse and I knew the lineage and I knew the shoulders that I would be able to stand on to get to where I wanted to be in my career. The Marv Alberts, the Marty Glickmans, the Bob Costases, the Len Bermans, the list goes on and on and on and on. And uh, so for me, it was, it was a one-track mind. I was going to Syracuse, and if I was lucky enough to get into the Newhouse School, that really cemented what I wanted to do for a living. But in this day and age, uh, to your point, Jack, I think it's what you do with the opportunity you are given. We all have different parameters, different uh, limitations that might not be limitations that we imposed on our own, 
but it might be financial, it might be socioeconomic limitations, whatever it is, there are lots and lots of opportunities and experiences out there that aren't marginalized because of where you go to school. You can make your own breaks, so to speak, no matter where you end up going for that secondary education. How many different uh, production jobs did you have, you know, getting your, you, you know, you quote unquote, get your foot in the door? Like you have all those different opportunities. The one LinkedIn post I saw that I really resonated with was the yes and improv comedy rule that you put out. You know, it's basically saying yes to anything to get your foot in the door, so to speak, whether it be working in video production behind the camera. Like if you want to be a play by play voice, great. But like you're going to have to do anything necessary in order to even introduce yourself to the right people. And that would be taking those kind of jobs. How many different uh, jobs did you have growing up trying to get into the business? Well, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, um, one of the things that I now appreciate about my Newhouse and Syracuse education was that they didn't let us in front of a camera until our junior year in college. So freshman year, sophomore year, it was all about writing, 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 And then it was about learning all the other technical and production positions outside of being a news anchor, a sports reporter, a sports anchor, a weather person, um, the front facing, the forward facing positions that so many of us wanted to get into. So it was frustrating at times, but Syracuse, just like so many universities have outside factors that you could get involved in. There's campus television, campus radio, the campus newspaper, of course, that you can get involved in and and kind of scratch that itch if you wanted to. Uh, But outside of Syracuse, um, my first real, true paying job that I got in the quote unquote media world was working for the Associated Press. It was the first job where I was making enough money that I was able to move out of my parents' house. I moved from New Jersey to New York City, lived in Manhattan, Certainly couldn't live by myself on the salary I was making, but moved in with a couple of buddies of mine from high school. And uh, I was writing. I was an editorial assistant writing for the Associated Press New York Bureau. It had zero to do with sports casting. It had zero to do with sports at all. But I got in the door and I was able to flex that muscle and work on the writing that my new house classes trained me for. And then it was up to me to be as enterprising as I could be. If I wanted to write about sports, I certainly was able to go pitch any ideas I had to the, the, the bureau chief in the New York bureau. And there were times where he allowed me to write stories and things like that. So that was the, that's the one that jumps out. It's not a production job, but it was a writing job. And I kind of group all of that into one big bucket, if you will, because there are so many people who were just like me and I'm sure just like you, Jack, who all we want to do is get in front of the camera. But there's a lot that goes into preparing ourselves to be in that role. And I think it's just like acting. I hear so many actors and acting coaches say there are no small roles. There are only small actors. I think that goes hand in hand with being a an on-air talent, if you will. There are no small jobs out there in broadcasting. If there If there's a job opening for a camera person, and there's no other opportunities right now for you, take that job as a cameraman, because you know what? That's gonna be at a small market, and there's gonna be an opportunity, whether it's presented to you or you create on your own, that you're gonna be able to get in front of the camera and get those reps and send out a demo reel based on that, even if you don't have the actual quote unquote job title that you're looking for. Is this, you know, to be specific, is this kind of one of the thi- biggest lessons that you would teach in your new uh, your new program, your new school that you're, you're coming out with? Because I feel like that would be one of the more tougher lessons to learn for a, an aspiring kid. Like, let's say you take an 18-year-old who wants to do play-by-play, and you're like, all right, go get a job in sales. Go get a job in marketing. Go be a writer. It's like, what? That has nothing to do with what I just told you. Well, in some way, we're all selling ourselves, yeah. right? And in some way, when we're doing our performing our role as a sportscaster or a newscaster or whatever the case may be we are all acting um but what i like to say is you need to find a way to discover and unlock and unearth your most authentic version of yourself uh so yeah i appreciate you mentioning the fact that i'm i'm launching a brand new cohort it actually starts i don't know 
when this is going to reach the masses to your audience. But we're starting in mid-January. I am very grateful to say that the first cohort completely sold out. We're actually almost sold out of the second one uh, at a future date that is yet to be determined, but it's coming right around the corner. So yeah, uh, what I wanted to do was pay it forward. I've been in this business for two and a half decades now, and I would not be at anywhere close to the level that I have reached, whatever that level is, without people teaching me and without people helping me uh, and asking for nothing in return. So I've learned from some of the legends in the sport uh, from either watching or knowing them. And I want to pass what I've learned on and hopefully engage with and inspire and influence the next generation of sportscasters because uh, I, I think it's all one big giant cocktail party. And you and I might be at other ends of the room of that cocktail party, but we're all at the same party. And I think we should all, you know, do whatever we can to help ourselves. So if there's one little thing or a couple little things that I could help aspiring sportscasters with, that's what my program is designed to do. It's not just about how to make a great demo reel, although that will be covered. It's about building and enhancing that journalist's toolbox, so to speak, whether it's being a reporter or an anchor or a sportscaster or whatever the case may be. And obviously, it's also about networking. And that's something that LinkedIn has been invaluable with, as far as I'm concerned. I have uncovered a world of relationships that I never would have had with aspiring sportscasters were it not for LinkedIn. This sounds like I'm getting paid by them, and I'm not. It's just uh, a matter of fact that once I discovered who was out there on LinkedIn, because for years I was like, I'm a sportscaster. What do I need LinkedIn for? I'm not a business person. But it's not just for business people. It's about making relationships, and that's something I'm really passionate about. I think you're going to have a ton of fun getting to interact with all of these different types of personalities that are going to be aspiring sportscasters, even sportscasters, you know, just trying to find their niche or like you said, their true authentic voice, their true authentic self, because there's so many different people with so many different backgrounds and personalities. And you're going to try to bring out that type of voice in them because it's not like when you grew up, you know, it was the Vince Scully's, the, the Dick Vitale's, the, you know, just all of these, you know, professional, well-dressed, you know, you were a play-by-play voice for a team. Like you were, you were almost a celebrity in and itself, you know, especially for aspiring play-by-play voices. And in today's world, you kind of have like that ability to almost be yourself in a way, maybe not that way on like an ESPN platform or Fox sports, but you see the barstool sports, you see the raunchy side of personalities on TV. What are you um, looking forward to most when dealing with all of these different types of personalities that you're probably going to be coaching? Well, it's interesting, Jack, because when I started this and I started it with my best friend from Syracuse, uh, who has nothing to do with broadcasting at all, but um, he thought that what I was doing during the pandemic, which was basically just connecting with a lot of different young sportscasters and, you know, doing some one-on-one mentoring and getting to know some people. And I realized how much I loved it. And it's every time he and I got together, every time he and I talked, he's like, man, you keep talking about this all the time. Why don't you make this a business? And I said, oh, come on. Well, you know, I'm not cut out for that. And he said, I, I think you are. And he's been a big driving force behind it. And what I discovered was who I'm looking for to be part of this cohort is not just the, the strict beginners, the ones who are have never picked up a microphone before. Or on the other end, I'm not just looking for the polished professionals who want to come in and just say, hey, I now know Rich Hollenberg, and now that's a big stepping stone for me. I want to meet everybody across the spectrum of sportscasting. So the, the caveat for being part of my cohorts is not your skill level. It's much more your passion level. If you have a passion for doing this, if you are all in and don't have a plan B, then I think you'll find a spot in this cohort. It might not be now. It might be somewhere down the road. But I want to meet you and I want to be somewhat of an influence in whatever way I could be, because I think that there are so many different layers to being a professional on-camera talent that in this day and age, like you said, Jack, you don't have to be Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw or one of these polished professionals because the world has changed. 
I remember when I was first starting out, the first national job that I got, um, I was fortunate enough to get in touch with Al Michaels. My dad knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who was able to put me in touch with Al Michaels. And I was like, what is Al Michaels going to want to do talking to me? I am nobody. And lo and behold, I got a number and I called it and it was Al Michaels number. And he was so kind and so gracious to me. And I was able to meet him covering Monday night football on my own while he was calling Monday night football 20 years ago. And I'll never forget the advice that he gave me. And keep in mind, this is 20 years ago. I said to him, I'm looking at going in this direction with my career. Am I stupid? Because the job that I was taking was not with a sports network. It was with an ancillary television network. It was still a national television network, but it was not a sports network. And he said, Rich, if this was 10 years ago, I would have told you you're crazy, but the walls are coming down. So I took that to heart. And now that is the type of advice that I'm still giving people who are breaking into this business saying, should I take this job over this job or what type of job should I take? And I tell them the same thing that Al Michaels told me 20 plus years ago, the walls are coming down. And that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, Jack, just saying yes opens the world to you to be able to learn and grow and get better as you go along. I mean, you have no idea who you're going to meet. Like that story in itself is amazing. Like you didn't know you were going to get that opportunity. You made the most of it too. He gave you great advice too. Like that that's the greatest thing that I've kind of um, acknowledged and seen since wanting to break into this part of the industry over the last four or five years. Everyone is so insightful. Everybody is so helpful. You responded to me within like three minutes of me reaching out. You know, like everybody is, everybody wants to give back. Like you said, everybody wants to help each other out in this business. Do you feel that way? I, I couldn't agree more. And I have found that every time I've picked up the phone and made a call, every email I've sent, every letter I've written. Um, I can't remember the number of times that I've been ghosted, but I can remember all the times that I've had conversations and built friendships and relationships with people that I still, to this day, take a step back and go, oh my gosh, like I actually have Dick Vitale's phone number in my iPhone. I actually know who Fran Fraschilla is and I'm friends with him and send him a Christmas card every year. Uh, those things are just kind of pinch me moments that I still, to this day, don't, don't take for granted. And um, that's another thing that I tell everybody. It feels awkward. It might feel like you are, um, like you are imposing on someone and that they're going to be too busy and they're too famous to help and take some time. I have never encountered someone who has given me that attitude or that feeling. So everyone who's coming up in this business today shouldn't have to feel that way either. I'm sure there are some people out there who are, you know, unsavory to some degree. I just haven't run into those people. Do you have one person specifically that you look at and be like, that was probably the greatest piece of advice that I ever got, whether it be a play-by-play a -play voice or, you know, family member, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I, I think I already told you, really. I think that Al Michaels conversation is one that continues to resonate, resonate with me on a, on a very regular basis. Um, I do, I have a funny one for you. It, it, it's not a, an honest answer, but still reminds me of a funny story. So I'm a senior in college at Syracuse and Bob Costas was and still is my idol. Um, I've always aspired to be as smart, as astute, as funny as he is. Um, and one day my senior year, I come to find out that Bob Costas is coming to speak to uh, the Newhouse School. And so of course, I'm on the sign-up sheet to attend and I show up early and the night before I was, you know, having a little fun with my friends, maybe had a pop or two. I was 21 at the time already. Um, so I was like, man, I got to hit the bathroom before I go into this, into this meeting hall to hear Bob Costa speak. So I run into the men's room and who's in the men's room brushing his hair in front of the mirror, but Bob Costas. And immediately that lightning bolt hit me where it was like I had the devil on my shoulder and the angel on my other shoulder. And the devil was saying, don't say a word. 
This is going to be humiliating for you. And the angel was going, this is your chance. This is what everything's been building up towards. So luckily, I, I put my embarrassment aside and I said to Bob Costas, I said, hey, Bob, nice to meet you. My name's Rich Hollenberg. I'm here to see you speak. And uh, I can't wait to ask you a question. And he goes, well, we're here now. What do you want to ask me? And I said, what I wanted to ask you was, what are you going to be doing in 20 years when I have your job? And his answer, I still remember almost verbatim, Jack, and it was, well, in 20 years, you could probably have my job, Rich. And obviously, that wasn't an answer that I could file away and say, I'm always going to go back to this and remember, and it helps me in times. Listen, it was nothing but personable and funny, and it had everything encapsulated in it that I wanted to. I had my moment with Bob Costas. And uh, listen, not everybody gets to meet their idols. I'm very lucky that I've met a number of them. And like I said, uh, the new we call it the Newhouse Mafia at Syracuse. If you graduate from the Newhouse School, you're part of the Mafia. And Mike Tarico, uh, who is more of a contemporary of mine than Bob is, uh, is certainly among them. And uh, we all pride ourselves on helping each other out, even if we've never met each other. And again, going back to what my new program is, uh, which bears my name, richhollenberg.com, um, the thing that I'm most proud of is I'm not relegating it just to Newhouse Syracuse students. I want it to be for everybody. I, I want to help as many people as I can. And I want to be the guy where 20 years from now, you're asking somebody that same question, and they're going to say, I remember a conversation I had with Rich Hollenberg. You've probably never heard of him, but I remember a conversation I had with Rich Hollenberg, and it really stays with me to this day. I mean, that's unbelievable that you're able to tell that story that many years later. And again, like not everybody, most people, like 95% of people probably don't get to meet their idols yeah. and you get to tell that story. And at that moment, you probably at that before then, you probably thought like, I have no plan B, like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do whatever I can in order to accomplish this goal. But at that point, you're probably like, this is it, you know, like this is this is, this is it, destiny, man. right? What do you say no to doubt. what do you say to people that join uh, your program that kind of have other things that they want to pursue? Like, not to say that they have a plan B, but like they're kind of all over the place. Like, yeah, I want to do play by play, but I also want to do this, that, that, and that. Is it more so like this is this is your goal? I can help you out. Like you talked about the passion part of it before, but what do you yeah. say to people that maybe it, they're not all in? If they're not all in, then I don't think they're right for the program that I'm running, to be honest with you. Uh, again, that goes back to that passion. And I don't want to piss off any parents because I know a lot of times these students or young professionals, because a number of the people in my first cohort are already out of college. Um, and that's really gratifying to me too, because I, I, I base it all on my, my, my mantra, if you will, is break in and break through. It's not just people looking for their first job in TV. It's for people who already have their first job or maybe their second job and are looking to move up the ladder. How do you do that? Um, so what I, I don't want any parents to think that I am feeding their children all of these unreachable dreams that's going to come back to haunt them and waste all of their time. Let me just shut that phone off. Sorry about that. Um, Could be Bob Costas. I, you don't know. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I just think that not having a plan B is more figurative than literal, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Because if you say, I want to be a sportscaster, but if I don't get a job in six months, I'm going to take a job in my dad's office in, and go into sales. Well, if your heart is, not, is only in it for six months, then you're really not giving yourself the best chance to achieve your dreams. And, and I think that you should act as if you cannot fail. And if you act like you cannot fail, then it's my belief, no matter how pie in the sky or Pollyanna it might be, it's my belief that you won't fail. And so that's what I mean by not having a plan B. So the, the long answer to your short question is, if you think you have a plan B, then there are plenty of other ways to get better at sports casting. It doesn't have to be just with me. Uh, I just think that, sorry about that. I just think that um, it's something that you should do for yourself, no matter how you have the ability to do that. If it's with your parents' money or your own hard-earned money, I think you should do it. But if you're not all in, 
then there's there are other programs out there that would be happy to take you on. I just don't think mine would be the right one. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting take because, like, you could maybe only make it as a minor league broadcaster, and that's who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Like, that's one well, legacy. There's nothing wrong with that Exactly. That's, that's one legacy that you could look back on and be like, I, I worked for this, and this is what came out of it. Like, what I put in, this is what came out. Or you could be the greatest who ever lived. I know you just finished his book, and I think that was another one of your LinkedIn posts that you posted about the the interview Howard Stern did with Dave Grohl about uh, yeah. he had no plan B, right? He was either going to be a musician or nothing else. You know, like he, his plan wasn't to be the great one of the greatest rock stars of all time. That's one of my favorite pic- picture. That one of awesome. my favorite concert. I was there at that concert. Oh god, dude! The guy broke his leg phenomenal. and continued to play. Phenomenal. It was yeah, unbelievable. I'm gonna reach up and grab something for you, Jack, because I'm here in my office. So I might as well. <laughs> but I might as well in that story, like he he would have been perfectly content with being a musician. There it is, the storyteller's new book, uh, Dave Grohl. For any of you that don't have it, you don't have to be a Foo Fighter fan to enjoy that either. That is one oh, hell of an honor. It, it was. I mean, for for a closet musician like myself, you know, they always say like rock stars want to be sports stars and sports stars want to be rock stars. I'm here to tell you, sportscasters want to be rock stars, too. (laughs) At least I do. Uh, That book was phenomenal. Phenomenal. And it's not just for music fans, Foo Fighter fans. It is just a life-affirming notion that goes back to what I was saying before about our profession, which is he knew from a very early age what he wanted to do, and he never let himself veer off that course. If he was going to be living in a van for the rest of his life, riding from gig to gig in these stinky little clubs, he was still going to do that because at the end of the day, he was doing what he loved and that's playing music. Right. It's almost as if like, I wouldn't think to do anything else. Right. You know, like I'm fine playing at bars in my local town in Virginia. Like he didn't think he was going to be a two time rock and roll hall of famer. I don't know how many of those people out there can say that they're in the rock and roll hall of fame twice. You know, I mean, given the circumstances, you know, you could argue which way that happened, but like, it's unbelievable. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. Like in in your estimation, like, did you ever think you were going to be a major league baseball broadcaster or anything alike? Like, what was your, what was kind of like your image of what you wanted your play-by-play experience to be when you were young getting into it? You know, it's fine. That's a great question. And the one thing that comes to mind, and this wasn't that long ago, I've been married almost 21 years now. And I remember when I first met my wife, I said to her, "Hun, just so you know, I'm going to be a millionaire. So, and I tell that story because A, I am not a millionaire, but B, that was even as recently as two decades ago, that was what I associated with being a sportscaster. I am going to be so successful that I will then make that much money. And I soon came to find that very, very few people in our industry make that kind of money. Um, Fran Fraschilla, who is one of the great basketball analysts in the world, and I'm fortunate to call a lot of college games with him, uh, always likes to say, they don't pay us to call basketball games. They pay us to travel. The traveling is the hard part. The calling the games is the easy part. And what I've come to learn, although I, I make very good money, I have a comfortable living, Um, I've come to realize that money is such a small part of what I enjoy about this industry and about this profession. And yet it's something great to aspire to. Uh, I always go back to that Jim Carrey story, how he wrote a check, I think it was for $10 million and put it in his dad's coffin because he doubted so much that he was ever going to be able to make it as a comedian and as an actor. He made a promise when his father died that he was going to be that successful. And lo and behold, what are you, whatever you want to call that, manifesting, and Dave Grohl actually talks about that too in his book. He manifested becoming a rock star. In some ways, that goes hand in hand with not having a plan B. Most people, when they think about manifesting it, you think about, wow, I'm really going to focus on the energy I'm putting out and it's going to come right back to me. And that doesn't sound like a lot of work. Having no plan B requires a lot of work, a shit ton of work, if I'm allowed to say that on your podcast. Uh, So they do go hand in hand, but when they go hand in hand, that means they are somehow interconnected. And all of that makes the fabric of what a career ends up being. 
So I have manifested my fair share of opportunities, but all of that manifestation wouldn't have happened without the hard work that I put into it. Um, I don't know if it was Yogi Berra who first said it, but he said, the harder I work, the luckier I am. And I think those are extremely, extremely true words. Yeah, not over till it's over too. You know, like you, <laughs> your dream's never gonna end. Like, did you ever come to a point where you, I don't wanna say give up, but like get to a point where it's like financially, I might have to pursue something else and take a break from this because it's not working out. Like, was your back ever against the wall in a sense? My back, luckily, knock wood, my back was never against the wall. Um, I've had my fair share of setbacks. Uh, I was working for Home Shopping Network and I was making a really good salary, especially as a 20 something year old at the time. I was making a really good salary, but I was miserable. I wasn't doing sports the way I wanted to do sports. And finally, after a certain amount of time, I left when my contract was up and I had a gap of about a year where I said, okay, the rubber's meeting the road here, buddy. You've been doing sports, but it's only been on the periphery. I, I worked for ESPN, but as a freelancer, uh, I had some spotty jobs here and there in the local Tampa Bay market, but nothing concrete. And I said, here we go. Like, this is where it's put up or shut up time. And this is where I had to practice what I've been preaching to myself all of these years. And um, within that year, I busted my ass to meet as many people as I could and get in front of as many people as I could. And luckily I met the right people along that, along the way where within a year I was calling my first college basketball game on ESPN. That's unbelievable. I mean, did you ever have like an exact moment? I know like the cliche answer to this would be, you know, like you have your good calls, you have your bad calls. You never have like the perfect broadcast, right? But when did you kind of figure out like, okay, I found kind of my voice, my niche as a broadcaster? Well, um, I was very fortunate to have some guys, some men behind the scenes who were integral to my success. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Chris Farrow, who was a longtime ESPN employee, now works for a production company that gets subcontracted out to do events, live events for ESPN. He was the first one that contacted me about calling games. Um, so I owe an eternal debt of gratitude to him. Dan Steer, who basically started ESPNU, he was a, an ESPN executive for a long, long time, uh, was someone who saw that I not only could call basketball games, but I also had some skills in the studio presence as well, and I could be a studio host for ESPN. Uh, that allowed me to flex that muscle, if you will. Those are two guys that were invaluable to my building my career at ESPN. So I would say the, the first thing that comes to mind isn't necessarily a call of a game, although that's where I've done most of my work with ESPN. I remember a year after I started at ESPN, and this is 13 years ago, um, I was calling Chris Farrow because I never met him in person. The previous Thanksgiving, he called me and he said, are you free over Thanksgiving? Of course I said yes. He said, okay, I have two college basketball games for you in Orlando. You're going to be working with Len Elmore, and here's the information. And I was like, oh, my, Len Elmore, are you kidding me? So I got about seven games that year, and it was strictly don't call us, we'll call you. Like if I sucked, my phone probably wouldn't have rang again. But I was good enough that my phone rang a few more times that year, and I said, I got to get in front of this guy. I need to meet him so I could build a relationship with him so he will give me more work. Uh, so I made a call. He was based in Charlotte. I'm here in St. Pete, Florida, and I was getting ready to fly up to meet Chris. And the night before, he calls me and he says, I don't know if you were planning on it anyway, but if, even if you weren't, make sure you bring a suit. And I said, okay, why? And he said, because Gary Williams, the head coach for University of Maryland, just announced that he's retiring. We don't have anybody in studio to that's available and we want to do a special a one-hour special on gary williams retiring at the time one of the great college basketball coaches so i said are you kidding me like this is straight out of a dream right uh i fly up there i am put on the set i interview dick vital i interview 
uh, Gary Williams. I was the first person to interview Gary Williams after he made his retirement speech. Uh, it was just straight out of a dream. I, I don't think my feet ever touched the ground. And that was my kind of welcome to the bigs moment, to be honest with you. That was when I was like, I pulled this off in less than 24 hours of prep time. I showed myself and the powers that be at ESPN that I could do this, that I could be a valuable component to the worldwide leader in sports. So that was my moment that I felt like, okay, this isn't just a dream. It's not just something that I hope I can achieve. It's something that I've proven to myself and to others that I can be of service and make a career out of this. That's when hard work meets opportunity. That's insane. Yeah. Like that's that kind of goes back. I mean, it absolutely goes back to what we were talking about, saying yes to almost every opportunity that you get if you want to pursue what you want to pursue. Because you never know who you're going to meet. You never know what opportunity you're going to run into. You never know, like, if they need a body. Like, in that moment, you're probably thinking, like, do I deserve this? Yeah. Yes, I worked hard for it, but am I the right guy for it? You know, and you got to prove to everybody that you were the right choice, and you did. That's yeah. unbelievable. That is unbelievable. I mean, th that those are, like, the moments that you work for and you strive for. And as a play-by-play -play voice alone, above anything else, you wear like a plethora of different hats in this industry. What would you say, you know, above everything else, because there's probably like a million answers that you could have to this question. What do you think is the most humbling um, thing as a play-by-play -play voice? The most humbling thing? Just in the industry as a whole, I'd say. Whether it be uh, travel it's, or... It, yeah, I, I, I think it's knowing that it's like a golf leaderboard, you know, I'm still, I'm 50 years old now and I'm, I'm still looking up at God knows how many people who, to be honest with you, the insecure part of my personality thinks, man, they're better than me. Yeah. Why are they better than me? How, how can I not be at this level instead of this level? And really, I don't even know if you had Bob Costas on here or Dan Shulman on here or Mike Tirico on here, I don't think they would say to you, even in the most honest of moments, yeah, I'm at the top of my profession. There's nobody better than me. There's always going to be someone better than you. Um, and I think it just takes a level of experience, a level of maturity, and a level, level of, you know, uh, of being humble to understand that while it is great to be aspirational and it is great to be ambitious, and, it, and you should never lose that about you. It's also very mature to understand that not being at the top is just a perception. You know, uh, there are people who would have my exact jobs that I have right now and say, if I did what Rich was doing right now, that's it. It would be my dream come true. And so I, I reflect on that quite often because there are we all have egos. You know, we wouldn't be in front of the camera with a microphone in front of our mouths if we didn't have egos. And we all think that we are probably better than some people think we are, and we're not as good as some people think we are. But, you know, the truth only lies in your heart and your mind. And if, as long as you have a growth mindset, you're always going to be striving to be better, picking little things as, as microscopic as they may or may not be at the time to improve upon, and, uh, and you just keep learning and growing and enjoying what you do. And it sounds really cliche to say this, Jack, but honestly, I, I don't feel like I work a day in my life. I could be slaving away for hours in this small office that I have in my house, but I enjoy doing it. So I don't really feel like I've worked a day in my life in this career that I've built for myself. And as long as you feel that way every day, it doesn't matter if you're at the top of the mountaintop or just at the middle, at base camp, wherever you are, you're still climbing. There's still another mountaintop after you've reached the top of this mountain. So just just keep working. The work is the reward. I mean, yeah, I mean, the what's the other cliche? It's not about the destination. It's about the journey, like what you're sure, doing. Yeah. Like you're living your glory days, you know, getting to that ultimate goal. 
And that ultimate goal is not going to be exactly what you thought it was either. I'm sure it wasn't that way for you. And then an interesting thing that you kind of just touched on that I want to talk about is, you know, saying like there is a certain level of ego involved. You know, you're not talking about just like the egotistical people who just think it's all about themselves, but like you want to be in front of a camera, like you want, you know, people to recognize your hard work in a sense. How do you uh, determine that healthy balance? Because again, like you're going to run into kids, aspiring kids with, with this program that are going to be, you know, level-headed, some people are going to be cocky, some people are going to be indifferent. What do you think is that kind of perfect balance in this industry? Uh, I, I think you have to be confident and not cocky. Um, and that's hard, you know, if, especially if you're young and meet with a certain level of success. Um, I've mentored a few kids out of Syracuse who have reached success at a much earlier age than I have. But again, it's all relative. Um, I think you have to have an inner cockiness, but an outer confidence. Um, It's all about relationships. Like I said, going back to that cocktail party reference, if you can build uh, a a relationship with any number of people and have those people, uh, when they're asked, who is Rich Hollenberg? Uh, And the first thing out of their mouths is, oh, Rich is a great guy. Not, oh my God, he is the best play-by-play guy or, oh, he is a dynamite studio host. If the first thing out of their mouths is, oh my God, I love Rich. Love working with him. Can't wait to work with him again. That is the best compliment you could give me. And that's what I think everyone should strive for because it's just like every other industry, really. It's it's a people business. And you, you know, I, I like to know my cameraman's first name. I like to know my director's children going up, you know, what they're up to these days, things like that. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a world we live in where things have become much more spread out, but at the same time, it sounds, you know, almost contradictory to say we're all much closer than we've ever been before. Uh, but it takes work, you know, it, it takes work to build those relationships. But at the end of the day, I'd much rather have the, the attitude of, knowing that people appreciate my work, but like me as a person more than, yeah, that guy's a real SOB, but man, he can call a great game. I'd much Mm -hmm. rather be known as a a good guy than a good broadcaster. I mean, you probably had your fair share of experiences working with people where it was like, he wasn't what I expected him to be, or like, he wasn't what I expected him to be. Like, you know, on the other side of the fence. Um, what do you think is like the right and wrong way? Like one example for each right way to network and wrong way to network from what you've seen. Um, the only wrong way to network is to not network. I mean, Mm. if you're not putting yourself out there, then you're just, you're killing your own career. Um, I am a networking evangelist and that was born out of the fact that I was not very good at it when I started. I remember I was gangbusters when I graduated at I went out and I bought the book of every single broadcast affiliate in the United States. And I think at that time there were 210 and I'm like, I'm going to call every single one and I'm going to do this and that. But when push came to shove, I was either too scared or too embarrassed or too hesitant to pick up the phone and say, Hey, I'm going to be in your town. I'd love to stop by and meet you or something to that effect. So, uh, again, you go back to practicing what you preach. Now I am preaching what I wish I practiced when I was just starting out my career. Um, not to say that, you know, I would be in a different place had I done that uh, all those years ago, but I know I would have been better off in some way, shape, or form. Um, I wish I kept in touch with Al Michaels after I first had that conversation with him. You know, there are always going to be those situations and those moments. So. The only bad networking is not networking. Um, It goes back to what we talked about earlier. You might think that you are imposing on someone when it could be the farthest thing from the truth. So the only thing you're imposing on is your ability to to, to get ahead in the business by making that phone call or getting in the car or buying that plane ticket and going to meet that person in person if you can. Um, I, I just think that, you know, as long as you are not impinging on them and becoming a nuisance to them, then, 
at some level, that person or people will appreciate your ambition and your, your drive to get somewhere in this business. And hopefully it will be with their help. And mm. if it's not, then someone else will step in and be that mentor to them that you weren't. And they'll look back on it and go, I remember, you know, taking a phone call from that, that guy or that girl. And yeah, I, I didn't have time that day, but man, would have been great to have him on my team. Wow. I mean, there's going to be a ton of great insight just from talking to you the, pe- the past hour, a ton of great insight when it comes to break in and break through with obviously what you got, you know, your teachings, what you've gained from your experiences and what you're going to put out there to help other people, you know, like you said, kind of giving back uh, to the industry for th- those young aspiring voices, whether they want to be a play by play voice or whether, you know, they figure out, OK, this isn't exactly what I wanted to do. Either way, you're going to be helping someone in one way or another. Right. This is this is for anyone who is passionate about broadcasting. It covers the whole spectrum. Certainly, we're going to be deep, diving deep in a play-by-play, but I've also been a reporter on a national network. I worked for NFL Network for a number of years. I was a correspondent for ESPN. I was a studio host for ESPN, and now with the Tampa Bay Rays and the Lightning and the Magic uh, regionally here in the Tampa Bay area. So I have... I have had all of those experiences and I can't wait to share any and all of it with uh, everyone who is equally as passionate about it as I am. Well, the last question I have for you, I know you probably got to take a shower soon. You were on a run before this, so <laughs> you probably got to take care of that. But, you know, I, I don't know if you're going to have an answer to this, but because you are not a guy who um, had a plan B ever. But do you have a plan B if this MLB lockout doesn't have a settlement anytime soon? Uh, www.richhollenberg.com. That was uh, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And one of the things that I wanted to do was build myself a little bit of a safety net. Like what happens if, if the, the, the season gets put on hold or gets canceled. And I got a taste of that as all of us did, who works, who worked in, uh, in major league baseball when COVID hit and we had half of the season. And I didn't work from March all the way until July when the season ultimately started. So I missed half of a season of baseball and that's half of a, you know, a, a sal- an annual salary that I normally make. So uh, I think it, you know, lesson learned. And like I said, necessity is the mother of invention. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's just now something that I was able to form into a concrete business plan with the help of of my good friend and uh, and partnering up with him has borne out this this fledgling business that I'm starting and again we're a couple of weeks away and I just can't wait to get going. Well, and that's breaking and breakthrough, correct? Yeah, that, that's what we're calling it. But the website is my name. I am literally putting my name on it. So all you have to do is. Go to richhollenberg.com and all the information's on there if you're interested. Well, it's as simple as that, richhollenberg.com. Rich, thanks so much for uh, being gracious enough to take the last hour or so out of your day. Don't don't uh, be shocked if I send a couple emails your way. I'd love to pick your brain about more stuff moving forward. Uh, but this was episode 468 of the podcast. We are presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale. Sign up for that membership today. Hanku, hit the lights, man. And then we have our uh, neon light go out. So that's why that. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.